2: Hello darlings, how are you, uh, we're in uh, sort of nearly at the end of term, time around here, I don't know about you, if you have kids in your life, I wonder how they're all doing, because for my lot we've had a lot of sort of hitting a bit of a wall now really, they always seem to grind to a bit of a halt at the end of term, I feel like the schools have kind of done their bit of all the assessments and all that and then there's a bit of like filler happens <laughs> at the end. Um... And funnily enough, I haven't had sports day yet. That's coming up next week. So funnily enough, because I actually spoke about that with my guest this week. So my guest this week is Deborah James, who I've been following for a while on Instagram. She goes under the name of Bowel Babe. And I remember when I first started following her, I knew a little bit about her. I knew about her podcast, You Me and the Big Sea. I'd read some things that she'd written, um and papers and so ostensibly what I knew about her was that she had spent time talking about her cancer diagnosis and also giving lots of inspirational chats and information to people going through similar experiences but when I first started following her I was a bit like is this definitely the same lady because she seems so upbeat and she looks so so healthy um and I think that's kind of part of what magnetizes you to her really is that she's got spirit about her that's very positive even in the face of something incredibly challenging so deborah's got two kids uh with her husband and she's had to raise them for the last nearly five years alongside coping with everything that comes along with a cancer diagnosis and let's face it this is a fear that if we haven't already experienced something similar this is a fear that everybody has regardless of whether you're a parent, just the idea of um, receiving medical information that completely switches up everything about where your life was headed. So for Deborah to have had to stare that down and still get out of bed in the morning and put on her nice clothes and throw parties and dance is nothing short of flipping incredible. And it was an absolute privilege and a joy to meet her and to talk with her. And we had such a great chat And she just, she blazes very bright, Deborah, And that's a special thing, not to be underestimated by anything. And her strength just radiates off her and her mindset and pragmatism. And yeah, it was, as I said, just a real privilege. And as I said to her in our chat, I'm not going to lie, I was actually quite nervous before we spoke, partly because I'm now approaching the one-year anniversary of... um, what happened last year when my stepdad died of cancer last year, so it's something that's very close to my heart. The idea of living with a um incurable cancer. Um, but also because she's young with a young family and these are not easy conversations to have, are they? It's a difficult topic. So I'd like to say thank you to Deborah for setting the tone and easing my apprehension about things because that's that's something she obviously has to do with lots of people all the time and I really appreciated it and yeah I'm very glad I get to share it with you and I think it's going to give you lots of things to think about because I mean all these conversations I get to have leave me with things in my mind and thought provoking conversations but obviously this one resonated on many levels so thank you so much to Deborah. thank you to you for finding us here and I'm going to make myself, you know what, cup of tea, white with one, please. And I will see you on the other side. That's the love. See you in a bit. Well, with with these chats, Deborah, there's only two things I've realised that I tend to ask everybody. And one of them is what you're up to at the moment, and one is what was happening in your life when you had your first baby. So which would you like to start with, the here and now or go back in
3: time? Um good question. Well I live <laughs> I live very much in the here and now, um, because that's all any of us have, right? Mm-hmm. So let's start with the here and now. Okay. Because I think that's kind of um relevant to all of us when we just have today to live.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And <laughs> I suppose we're in quite a significant time for you for lots and lots of reasons, not least because you're coming up to five years since diagnosis. Yes. And that was, I know when you were first diagnosed, that was the sort of, they always give it, don't they, in a sort of how many people meet, reach a five-year yeah. point. And your diagnosis was pretty startling,
3: actually. Really shocking. Um, I think, so with stage four bowel cancer, you kind of always think, you know, statistics, you, you don't really want to hang too much on them. You know that they're old you know that science, you know, medicine accelerates forward so quickly Mm -hmm. that you always have to hold hope. But I've learned over the last nearly five years that those statistics exist for a reason. And less than 8% will survive for five years. And I unfortunately have a really aggressive mutation where a couple of percent might survive. So the fact that I'm still here, I am so much of an outlier it's surreal, but I would say it's, I, I've seen even recently um, how hairy um, things have become. Um, and as a result, I kind of, you know, I never forget those statistics. Um, mm. And I think that's, that's all it is, is kind of I have it hanging over me. And in a weird way, that, that drives every single day.
2: Yeah, it's, an, yeah there's a lot, it's really impressive how you've taken that and sort of interpreted it as a reason to be really embracing the here and now. But I guess I don't even know how you'd fathom involving that in your day-to-day life. And I'd be the same as you. I'm quite pragmatic and I'd be Googling everything. And I think I'd want to know what's there. But at the same time, you know, just now before we started recording, you were talking about your kids and school things and how you didn't think you'd live to see this bit. But
3: does that ever stop being completely surreal? I know you can talk about it, but... No, it's like it... It's like it's happening to somebody else. So I think even when I was diagnosed, it was almost like this this nightmare um, that you kept on waking up thinking is this real and then you you know you would go back to sleep and it might be I think people have it maybe when it's a traumatic event is trauma in your life and the carpet has been whipped from beneath your feet and suddenly you kind of um you wake up in the world that you knew Mm. um didn't exist anymore and we've we've all had that recently with covid you know everything has had to change but but the, the great thing about us as humans is we are adaptable and people say how do you carry on and the reality is I don't really have a choice Mm. I mean I do have a choice I could just go um, and and I have to say like the last couple of weeks I've been at this point I've been at rock bottom where I've gone actually maybe I should just close the door and walk away from all treatment uh, because it's really tough it's so tough And and then suddenly I I don't know what it is, but suddenly you might have a good night's sleep, or you might see a smile on somebody's face. Or um, the other day, I think I think I actually finally wanted a glass of wine. I know that sounds really silly to say that, but when your body shuts down, you don't want things that you enjoy. Um, I didn't want food. Suddenly, I was I demolished like an entire pack of Venetian swirl biscuits, which was so good. And I I was it was about three o'clock in the morning, and actually it. weird way that gave me a little bit of kind of oh oh there's a bit of hope because suddenly my body wanted to almost live in a way Mm. um and I think yeah it it is that balance it's really hard um it it is really challenging um but yeah (laughs) yeah well
2: I you know and I think you know before we spoke today you know full disclosure I felt quite nervous about speaking to you for, for lots of reasons not just because it's you know quite a big scary topic, but also because I've been recording this podcast, which is all about you know busy working women who also happen to be mothers, about how they will get it all done. And following you on Instagram, I had this thing of like Deborah must think like people like me who get to indulge that feeling of like oh golly I've got to do this that and the other. I mean. How does it feel when you're looking out to the world where everything is still running on its same normal energy but then suddenly everything doesn't really apply when you've fallen into a club you didn't mean to be a member of?
3: That's a really good question. I think sometimes, um, I think it gives you a little bit of a... I've, I've, I've always got quite a hard edge to me, but especially when it comes to parenting as well. So I kind of, um, in a weird way actually... Um, It makes me think, no, my kids are really important because actually, when you don't know how long you've got with them, the reality is actually, um, you know, people not pampering to their kids, but actually, you know, wanting to be with their children. Absolutely, I actually want to be with my kids. I, I weirdly, I might complain about rocking up to sports day, and I might be standing, at, you know, at the back, going, "Oh, just hurry up and don't, <laughs> don't, don't give up," which which I was doing yesterday at my daughter's sports day. But at the same time, um, had you asked me seven years ago, do I care about attending sports day? I would have said no, and that's really selfish to say that. Um, but I think I was caught up in a um, very much a like I want my career um this is what I'm doing for my kids as mm. well mm. um but actually they just have to make do their mum's not going to be there, but now, actually um sometimes making those things um means quite a lot to me because I don't know if I'm going to do it again that's all it is um and no i don't I don't kind of get um jealous or or kind of put out by it the one thing the one thing I do kind of I don't have any time for is when somebody's saying oh my darling so and so won't eat like this and I'm really worried about this and and I'm like and I think I was I used to have this attitude when I was a teacher as well is that kids are really resilient Mm. and I think that actually we don't give them enough credit and I think um COVID has taught us this like kids bounce back they they yes they they we have to look after them but at the same time um you know they they're more independent than we allow them to be half mm. the time uh, they have brilliant thoughts they they can do so much more and actually the best thing for your child is um I, I, you know i'm the mum that will never do homework with their kids mainly because i hate it um but also having sat on the other side of the fence i'm like I don't know what these kids don't know if you're sat that if, if their parents basically given the homework every week. And the thing that uh, grates on me is still seeing like um, parents with, of children, uh, you know, with kids, um, of my, sorry, with, with kids my own children's age of 11 and 13, still like going, have you done your homework? Have you done this? Have you done this? Yeah. And I'm like, let them fail because it's the only way that they're going to pick up. And that's, to be honest, I don't think that's cancer. I think that's just my kind of, my hardened, like, get up, carry on, like, attitude, which I think probably has got me through cancer um, and certainly kind of gets me through juggling parenting and cancer at the moment.
2: Yeah, well, no, of course, because lots of things you're talking about, you know, the natural order of things is trying to equip your kids to grow into adults that can thrive and survive in the natural order of things is that we're not going to be there for the whole time of it Absolutely, but and a lot of what you're talking about in terms of that resilience and everything is something that they'll always know their mum instilled in them and actually when you're talking I was thinking I think a lot of that stuff of going like not wanting your kids to worry too much and going oh I'll help you with this is probably a thing I've made a mistake of especially with my eldest yeah I think with the first one I kind of the idea of them feeling anxious or worried but actually the older they get you're like oh my god I've just got to let them just do Do this now yeah yeah. and all my friends that I think regard as really brilliant parents are excellent at that that kind of thing yeah, yeah just going like You're your own person. I've given you everything you need to do this. Can you do it or can't you? And then if you can't, as you say, with the the bits they can't do, you don't know what they don't know unless they do it themselves.
3: Unless they fail. And then you give them the building blocks. So you can step in to give them the building blocks, but it's like you don't want to give them the first step. You need to actually let them work out what steps they need help with exactly, and yeah. then and then walk alongside them rather than just doing it for them. Yeah, and I think that's the key, isn't it? It's kind of and trust me, like we all have different views on on parenting, and none of us are, you know, I, I, as my daughter will tell you yesterday in an argument because I, I did go to sports day yesterday, um, and I my daughter is the polar opposite to me in terms of she's brilliantly creative, um, and like sports days, like just. It's like her worst day of the year, and when I was growing up, sports day. I used to love sports day. I used to dream about sports day. Like, really? Oh, I used definitely to love more it. your daughter in this conversation. <laughs> so, so, so I was there, like, and my daughter. To be fair to her, like, you know, did put herself up for different um, activities, and um, you know, she she basically came last in all of them, and I'm there going oh, well, will you just hurry up, please? This is ridiculous. (laughs) You need to run faster. Yeah, basically, (laughs) just run. And all the other parents are going, well done, good effort. And I'm going, well, I just don't think it was very good. And then then she came back and we had huge tears. She was like, I can never be good enough. I can never be good enough. So I think, you know, none of us are great. We all get it wrong all the time. Our kids will always kind of love and hate us. Yes. Regardless of what day it is. Um, And yesterday, Moise also definitely hated me.
2: (laughs) Well, it's it's, it's interesting because I know that you were talking, I read something where you were saying that in a way it's sort of post-diagnosis you felt you became a a better parent actually and so the fact you're there at sports day albeit with some (laughs) some (laughs) constructive criticism (laughs) to offer um that's just something that wasn't part of do you how do you think of it like the the
3: former life or just is there a sort of yeah the pre-cancer life was very different um and even pre-covid life as well I'd say there's been a seismic shift um when I got diagnosed with cancer and I think for me um the big that biggest shift was actually the the loss of my career. Um and I have then, you know, gone about creating a new, I suppose, pathway or a new career as such. But it was um it was traumatizing actually. And but what it did make me realise is I was so one-track-minded mm. in terms of like my career came first above everything in terms of i was i think it's because and i know we're going to go back to this question i had kids young um i hadn't had time to prove myself um i'm always like i'm quite a competitive ambitious person i knew what i wanted to do but i i kind of was never brave enough to be able to take a step back and realize that actually it didn't have to happen now and i could do both i think i just always thought no i can only do career Mm. um and I think my my kids they didn't suffer they were absolutely fine you know they were always really well looked after but would if you asked them was mummy around the answer would absolutely be no and this was what you were deputy head is that I was a deputy head um but I I just I used to work in um I was on a really fast track Um, to headship and when I um and it seems like a whole different world away actually like I haven't really stepped foot back inside a school um since I got diagnosed because emotionally it was something that I'd really wanted and then it just went but yeah I kind of um I was working I was working um, kind of in failing schools and when you're working in failing schools you literally give your life and soul to turning around those schools um including your health (laughs) potentially um but it just meant that you know I didn't I I think I was around with my kids but I think it's about being present and engaging with them and I think to be honest with you I was so emotionally knackered from like my job that I actually probably at the weekends I was there but I definitely didn't really engage in what was going on in their lives whereas now um even if i 've been in hospital, I can absolutely tell you where the friendships stand between uh, eloise and so and so yeah. and so and so did you know this person today and um I think in a weird way, just being present for those conversations has made a massive difference
2: yeah i mean i 'm nodding a lot because i 'm thinking actually that really sounds familiar for me in the last year as well in terms of not being tra- traveling as much and yeah. I, I really love my work, but I think it's sometimes something you can hide behind a little bit really because especially if you're passionate about it, and imagine those failing schools, you feel completely engaged and it's it involves loads of children and it's their
3: future. So you've got these collective, you know, this, got youth, this purpose that you, know, purpose, yes, you absolutely. have to do. But you're right, you hide behind it a little bit because I quite frankly I hate the I hate the the parenting logistics of life. Like I'm I'm my, my strength in parenting comes with fancy dress and generally doing fun stuff. Um, anything that involves the logistics of practically like, um, for example, today is my, my, my daughter's second to last day. They all have to go in with a, um, an item of uniform for their next school. Who the hell? Who what? on earth and having the uniform that you're supposed to get for September? Thank you. Who on earth who on earth has brought a uniform um? Well they grow those during the summer anyway. Exactly. Wow, well, it trans- <laughs> it transpires that I'm the only parent in the class of forty who hasn't brought one single item. What? Who I are know. these people? Uh, really organized. Why are they buying
2: uniform now? Really organized people. <laughs> Even to the week before, where you panic about having to pay for extra shipping.
3: <laughs> That's what I do. And I'm like, oh my word. So when it comes to like the logistics, like, you know, my kids are the kids that will turn up with like you know last year's shoes because the queue has gone down the road for getting the new shoes, and I'm like, it's fine. You know, a week into school term, yeah. everything settles down and it's all fine. But so I can't do that kind of stuff. So to be honest with you, it's it's not I can't do, I just really don't want to do it. So, um, and and I know we all have to do stuff at at the end of the day, but I think you're right, you end up hiding behind kind of your career or whatever it is. But also, I don't think I was confident enough or brave enough in my own ability to be able to kind of say, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to park it. Mm. I'm now going to do family life. And I think that comes a lot with age as well. Um, I would say, like now approaching my forties, um, I think just my confidence in my own ability, regardless of what that is, whether cancer has made that happen, has has been very different. And you kind of value yourself. I think I value myself a lot more rather than rather than that desperate kind of need to please somebody else to prove your worth. Mm. Um,
2: yeah, it's, it's interesting. Can you say your strength of the fancy dress and the fun side? Was that really? something you could really bring when you were doing the deputy headship then um i did weirdly yeah because it was
3: kind of like again it's like you're engaging on a different level if that makes sense you bring it home you mean or at school bring it home and at school (laughs) (laughs)
2: great which is always fun what this failing school needs is fancy dress trust me this is exactly what it
3: is (laughs) I know, that was happened. Yeah, that was absolutely happened. <laughs> but no, I think it's, yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. But you do, you do kind of, um, yeah, you, I, I, I've always managed to do that with my kids. But my kids will tell you that since cancer, um, yeah, I'm like a different person. Um, mm. But I think, you know, I think also since COVID, actually. Mm. But I think since COVID as a family, um Because logistically, it showed us that we can actually be together all the time. Yeah. Not all the time, you know, that's a bit too much, to be honest with you. But (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, um, my husband doesn't travel as much. I'm less frantic. I'm I'm the person I have... I've realised that I have massive, massive FOMO. So I want to be at every possible party. Like, (laughs) life is short. If there are three parties going on in a night... I will want to go to every single one of them. And I, I find it really weird um, to kind of... A, recognize, I never recognised that in myself. So I'd just be running around London like a headless chicken, just like having to desperately like live and go to everything. Um, and it was actually quite nice that COVID has forced a bit of a slowdown in me. Um, I think probably more so than cancer, actually.
2: Yeah, it's When all the COVID stuff first happened and people would start putting things up about like, it's forced us to slow down. I was really reluctant to be like, I don't want to say that anything's been taught to me this year because I already knew a lot of stuff. I knew I like, like the people I live with, luckily. Um, I like my job. Uh, there lots of, and then um, slowly, slowly you think, actually there have been some nice, some positive aspects that have come out of a very heavy time. Like when you're talking about the family life, I do like the fact that now I can pretty confidently tell you what's going on in all my kids' lives. And I think yep. before that, you know, if someone asked me a question about, I don't know, does so and so, do they all eat vegetables? And I'd probably be like, ah, can we ask them all? Because I can't quite remember who eats what. But now I'm just like, I feel I quite like being more across those things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, um, do you think that you're, as a family, you've got, because every family as well, they have, Sort of characteristic of what's sort of celebrated in their home, and do you think generally being sort of quite, quite resilient
3: and finding the fun is—is—is
2: yep. is, is something that's part of your whole family?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, would, I would say as a family, like always before cancer, um, or you know, sadly, the thing that I've missed the most. Is as a family is celebrating those milestones. So I'm always the person that throws the party. Um, so I love throwing a party. Mm. Like um, my, my favorite party every year is Halloween. Um, so it was just a bit weird. I know. No, I love um, Halloween. So for, it's like somebody said, "What do you want to do for your 40th birthday?" Because it's in October. I said, "I want to throw the biggest Halloween party ever." <laughs> That sounds good. That's well, probably so, why you love Halloween as well, is, by the way. Yeah, it's probably, your birthday it probably in October. October. <laughs> so, so it's my daughter's birthday. It's the end of October. And I've just brought her up, almost like merging her birthday with a Halloween party. And she got to the, she got to the point where she was like, Mum... Everybody else has, like, princesses, all these things. You make all my friends turn up with blood. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I do. And now she thinks it's quite cool. It's but definitely it. cool. So I would say, during COVID, the thing that I've missed is actually those those excuses to bring people together to kind Mm. of celebrate and have fun. But I would say that's probably the common theme. Like, I got that from my parents. I grew up in a house that was a massive open house. Like, um, you know, still now my parents are the people, you know, I'll, I'll go back to my parents and I'll see, you know... You know, when COVID allows, I'll see 10 people in the garden all drinking rosé um, because that's what my parents do, like, and anybody's welcome. And including, you know, I've had so many dinners. I grew up having so many dinners with total randoms at the table. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. Like, I, I absolutely love it. So and it's, It was kind of like, well, of course, like, bring your friend's friend's brother-in-law. That's great. <laughs> and And I think that's a really nice... Thing. I think it's
2: lovely. My mum's the same. We just yeah, like we'd scoop up extra people for Christmas Absolutely. and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I I often invite people over for here. Uh, they sometimes look a bit unnerved because it can be quite intense, can't it? If someone <laughs> casually mentions they're not sure they've got plans, and it's, come here.
3: Just come. Like, it's fine. I don't need to spend Christmas with your family. But we um. <laughs> do exactly the same because I hate the idea that people, because because I understand, like, I understand that people, you don't have to be the party for it. But if you are, then invite people, you know, scoop everybody in because, you know, it's, it just makes people feel welcome, doesn't it?
2: Definitely. And
3: it's
4: like, yeah, why not?
0: <laughs> so your your
2: parents, are you part of a big family? Have you got brothers and sisters? Yeah,
3: I've got a brother and a sister. Um, my brother's probably more <coughs> similar to me. He's he's exactly the same already. He's, like, throwing the party. He's 10 years younger. And, are you the eldest? Yeah. And already he's kind of, <coughs> you know, throwing the parties. Uh, my sister's a bit different. Um, she's much more homely um, and enjoys baking. Um, that, that that does her a disservice, but she's kind of... She, she lives at a she can cope at a much slower pace of life uh, than I can. Um, but but my my family mean the world to me um, because I think um, that is how I function mm. um, because of my family, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I literally want to share life with them. And so everything that I do, I feel really lucky that I'm in a position where I actually really enjoy being able to take my mum away on holiday or... Uh, yesterday we were at Hampton Court Flower Show and I don't want to go on my own to Hampton Court Flower Show. I actually want to go with my mum or Mm. I want to go with my dad. So yesterday I went with my mum and my dad and my husband and my son because, well, why not? No, Uh, I'm exactly the same. I like spending time with my family too. Do you live near them then? So we live about an hour away. Okay. um, But that doesn't kind of, you know, stop anything. Um, And I just, you know... I haven't always been like that. Um, Growing up, I definitely have been, you know, definitely, I was, again, the the 16-year-old girl who would throw the house parties and ruin my parents' house (laughs) um, and ruin their kitchen floor and ruin their bathroom. I'm really sorry, Dad. Um, And, like... I remember once for my 18th, like them finding beer bottles in the garden. Like three months later. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. I was really impressed with my friends, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think you know I love I love that. But yeah, for me, yeah them being part of everything but now funny enough my brother lives so they live an hour away my brother lives five minutes in one direction oh. and my sister lives 10 minutes in the other direction and did your did your mum work when you were young yeah she still works now so we've always kind of been a family that um it sounds a bit weird but a bit of grafting um and my mum is mid-60s she she um i used to be a gymnast um, she still teaches gymnastics and circus skills. So one of my love of the circus comes oh. from the fact that my mum is in her mid-60s and still teaches, like, aerial hoop. Um, that is so flipping cool. Which is quite cool, yeah. Yeah. Which is fun. So I kind of, like, get that kind of love of... I get that love of kind of, um, you know, fun from my parents, but also that attitude of, well, just get up and carry on. Because so she's quite sporty as well, then, you mum. Does she do all the stuff Yeah, she's she a silly to, question yeah, no, if you're no, teaching she does. it do you actually do yeah it yeah, well. yeah she's she, she definitely attempts to um but you end up um but I think both of my parents are very much like even in their mid-60s they're like get up working all the time and yeah they're you know they're slowing down a bit but um and trying to enjoy life a bit more but actually they've always had to work to bring us up to afford to bring us up mm. um and and kind of, I think that attitude has been instilled in me as well. Yeah. You can't just, you can't get something for nothing. So, when, when you say you were a gymnast, were you actually doing that? You mean like throughout your teens or? Yeah, throughout. So, um, I get, well, I stopped mid teens, um, but I was a national gymnast. Oh, wow. So, I, I trained about 20 to 30 hours a week from the age of seven oh, growing up. Wow. So, that my whole childhood was gymnastics. Um, And I was in the national team and used to train at Lillyshaw National Sports Centre and was part of the Woking Gymnastics Club. And then I kind of knew that I wouldn't make it to the Olympics because now things have changed quite a lot. But then almost at 16, you were kind of past it with gym. And I actually, funny enough, I got to the point where I was too heavy to carry myself. Like, I know I'm quite petite, but... um, you have to I went through puberty basically and as soon as you go through puberty I couldn't like it's really hard to lift and spin. Yeah. Um but it gave me like massive resilience. So I was trained by um some brilliant coaches but I um you know there was this real mental toughness with mm. the training. That was essentially like you fall off the beam. You never end on a bad beam. You never end on a fall unless you break your foot or whatever it is. But you literally, you got back up and you carried on. Um, so I think my harshness also comes from that. Because when my kids go, I'm really tired, I'd be like, well, I'd be doing three hours in the gym now. So, <laughs> wow. Which I know you can't compare. And I think that's something as a parent, a lot of us do. We compare like what we're good at or used to be good at mm. or what we were doing as a child and I think that's really bad, and I have to stop myself because actually my kids have so many better traits than I do um, but but yeah that was that was my childhood
2: well that's yeah that that sounds like something that would absolutely lay the framework for all sorts of ways of handling things, and yeah. in fact, actually having to experience something you've trained for twenty to thirty hours a week from the age of seven and then having to deal with the fact that Changes in your body have meant that that's now no longer an option. Do you remember how you felt
3: about all that? Awful. So I remember giving up. I remember. um So I think it's quite a lot of uh, not children, but yeah, possibly children. Actually, you you may be training for something, and it may maybe that you haven't made the Olympics or that one milestone thing, and you kind of you get to the point where you kind of go right. Um, that now needs to be parked, and I remember feeling to- utterly empty because, literally, I mean, I used to uh, go to a school that would allow me um, out early in the afternoon to then go and train. So my whole life was like based around gymnastics, and um, I d- it just went overnight. And then I, I suppose, I spent the next, um, of, you know, growing up my teenage years filling those gaps. Mm. And so I went through like a lot of other sports, say so athletics and tennis then filled it with boys, really, to be honest with you. Good good choice. Uh, Which is quite a good choice. Um, (laughs) And kind of, I would would say, yeah, different phases of my life, I filled those gaps with different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, never really found, like, the one thing that I then wanted to do. But, but, you know, in a way, I have great memories of gymnastics. Mm. Um, And I think it gave me a really good foundation um, for kind of probably mindset, really. Well, I would say so. It's quite unusual, I think, to... I mean that that
2: way of thinking about things, like an athlete, is quite a defining thing. But I think doing it at such a formative time in your life yeah. is is another. It's like two things, sort of like you've got sort of, um, mm. given very solid foundations to yeah. that that way of thinking. Um, so, when you were, what, what, what way do you then end up being involved in teaching? And I mean, it's, it's, forgive me. So if you were deputy head does that start off as being all through the rungs of teaching or is it its own
3: route no all through the rungs of teaching so I just went straight from university into teaching to be honest with you I didn't have a bloody clue what I wanted to do (laughs) (laughs) and I just literally was like I don't know what what I want to do in life um and I went to university I basically went to university um and I had the best four years of my life and Where did you go to uni? I went to uni in Exeter. Oh, cool. And, um, That's why actually ranked us still as one of the best places to go to uni and it for was in just, terms of student life. Oh, God, it was, <laughs> I've, you know, and funny enough, some of my best friends, we, we still live within a, a mile radius of each other here in London. And I said, I said to you when uh, you reached out to me about the podcast, so Murder on the Dance Floor was our university song, <laughs> because I think it was released, when was it released? 2001. Yes. So mm. I, was, I was at uni 2000 to 2003. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, well, 2004, so you can imagine, like, um, that every night, uh, like, when we were supposed to be doing our finals, or, well, not even, when we were just supposed to be actually working, um, (laughs) and me and my friends, we, we wanted to go to every, you know, we just loved life there, and it was all about fancy dress, it was all about... Get, I was, I'm very much a joiner inner if that makes sense I'm like one of those people who you put me into uh, like I love where I live in London like it's a local village and I love getting involved with the local village it's like it's other people's idea of like hell but for me I'm like I like to know like what's going on in the village and at university I was exactly the same I'd be like you know, part of the the uh, a rag side, rag society, and I'd like I'd do some the fashion show every year, which is like a dancing show, and um, I just I just loved it. And then and then your song was is something that is etched in m- mine and my friends' memories because it was so prevalent at university in that time period, <laughs> and it was just one of those things where it would come on at like one o'clock in the morning. And I would just go mad. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for telling Which me that. Which was hilarious. I'm glad
2: I was there. <laughs> Boy, you all. I think uh, it's funny because I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm two years older than you. But obviously when that came out, all my friends were at uni. Oh, yeah. So that was like, it's all part of that same backdrop in terms of like going to visit my mates when I could. Or, you know, one of my friends borrowed this massive ball gun I'd worn for a video for her end of uni ball and all this sort of stuff so I was like I I was really um quite sad to miss out on uni life because it looked like so much fun um but I'd sort of missed the boat with applying and ended up going back into music so yeah it's quite nice I got to go in a in a small way. Well, I didn't really, did I? I stopped you from doing the homework and the coursework. But. <laughs> no, no, I
3: love it. It was, it was, just, it was just brilliant. But the, the problem is I got so caught up with the uni life that I failed to kind of work out what I wanted to do after uni. Um, and I just, I tried a few things, um, not tried, but did um, a few kind of um, job placements in mm-hmm. different things and nothing really fitted. And then I, um, I used to teach a bit of tennis, um, like I'm rubbish at tennis now, but I used to teach a bit of tennis, and I I realised you end up if you do something that you love, then actually it just doesn't really feel like work, right? Yeah. And I thought, oh, so from a practical perspective, also, I basically wanted to stay and be a student for another year, and um, it was at the time where they were offering loads of bursaries for 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 people to do shortage subjects. And they just introduced, um, well, they just made um, computing part of the curriculum. And I, um, for some reason, I just, I like, I'm a bit of a tech, I'm not a tech geek, but I like I like playing with computers. So I can't do the technical setup of anything, but I quite like using computers. And I, I also worked out it was the biggest bursary, so I didn't need to ask my parents for the money. And um, I ended up being the only girl who applied for the course. And I think they just had to give it to me, even though my degree has nothing to do with computing. And I remember, um, so I got a place and I I was one of the first girls, I think I was the first girl in the country. There was a couple of us, one at Exeter and one at Roehampton, I think, that trained in in computing, which was a great foundation because it then meant that we could just... Uh, really champion girls in, in science subjects mm-hmm. and stuff like that when I worked, then did go into teaching. So it was a really great kind of area that I ended up being mm. in. Uh, but I remember turning up on my first day wearing, like, the shortest of skirts. Um, it was probably the shortest of skirts, trainers, and some were, like, inappropriate top. And I remember walking into a room of, like, utter geeks. And there was, like, 22 boys sitting around the room. And I walked in, and one of them went, oh, peed down the corridor. And I, I literally, that was the fire that I needed. And Anyway, I ended up, like, coming top of the class because I was like... Excuse me! Wow! <laughs> Excuse me! And <laughs> basically was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, you guys may have the, the knowledge, uh, but at least I can communicate. <laughs> yeah, so it's all fine.
2: <laughs> That's really impressive. I so, love that. It was quite funny. It was I like one of those moments
3: top. of like, like you know, the kind of no, no, no. <laughs> like, yeah don't pay me yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: suddenly there was no other option it was going to be like let's <laughs> like, get I'm, me to the top of that I'm gonna
3: destroy you <laughs>
2: yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then when you were teaching so when you were teaching you when did you have your first baby then
3: yeah so I um so my first so uh, Hugo who's now 13 mm. was a very pleasant surprise <laughs> Um, so I met my husband, um, my now husband, um, Sebastian, about a year out of uni. Okay. So we were just all partying in London, and my ex-boy. I went. I went to a nightclub to, probably to impress an ex-boyfriend of mine. It was Cafe de Paris. Oh yes so so when people have all these romantic stories about where they met their husband like i did meet my husband in the nightclub um and um it was sadly it closed down yeah i know quite recently right really recently yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's really because it was actually a
2: very pretty venue it's beautiful and i'm venue. thinking when you're saying that i'm thinking i don't think i've actually heard of anyone else meeting their the potential husband in a club because normally people don't really actually you think you might meet someone
3: that way but it's, it's quite unusual, don't. isn't It's it? really unusual. Yeah. And I um so yeah, we I met met him and um he's kind of um really he's a local boy actually. Um and really lovely. Um, very kind of opinionated and feisty and um I think he I can't this sounds really weird to say this, but I can't walk all over him in terms of like um, which is a good thing, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of like, um, and and he's changed a lot. Over, he's mellowed over the years, which is mm. a good, which is also a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we met. So I met him at twenty three, and I was pregnant by twenty four. Um, and it certainly wasn't. Oh, did I meet him? No, maybe I met him at twenty two. But yeah, I was pregnant by twenty four. But it certainly wasn't um, planned. <laughs> uh, but it was the best thing that ever happened. Essentially, I remember it, like I just turned twenty four. Um, and found out I was pregnant, and I, um, I I had like polycystic ovaries and never had periods ever, and um, and still don't to be honest with you. And I'm not in menopause like my hormones weirdly. Um, I thought I would be in menopause, but actually I'm not at all. Is but that quite? I don't really know too much about polycystic ovaries. Is that quite common to not have any periods? Yeah, I think so. And but what I, what I was told about it is kind of. Um, you know, actually, if you were to fall pregnant, you know, it would just be a bit harder to fall pregnant. Okay. Um, and my sister had it, and that took her ages to get pregnant. And so I, you know, just threw caution to the wind, I think, you know, and didn't really overthink it because I just genuinely thought, oh don't know. But obviously, you know, all men then think that they have super sperm, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: <laughs> I know, because actually I'm I, very similar to you. got pregnant at 24, having not been going out very long with Richard. And yeah, so I think, yeah. Which is always like, well, you know, uh, you know, it's happens.
3: It's just, just, and, and then, then, then they feel really proud of their achievements. <laughs> and anyway, so, so, me and my, we weren't married. Obviously, uh, we got married like later, um, after we had Hugo, um, because I remember, I do remember telling my family, and I think everybody was quite shocked because I've never been somebody who's kind of always gone, yeah, I want to have loads of kids. If you had asked me at twenty-four, mm. I'd be like. Nah, they'll come later uh, because I was like two years into teaching and my husband you know I look back now and uh, you know when when I had Hugo um I was really really young actually um I know it's not that young but I think probably probably out of your peers as well out of my peers I was god the first by 10 years really to be Mm. honest with you um, and, and the thing it did, the thing that I did find quite hard is because none of my peers were having children at that age. So all my uni friends went off in one direction, which was the kind of London party life. Mm. And then I went into kind of like, you know, the mumsy life. But then I think I then, um, found it really hard actually, uh, with both my kids, because I think I felt like I had quite a lot to prove because I was so young. So I, like, retrospectively now, I think, oh, my God. But I think it's because I was so young. I, I mean, I took about four months of maternity leave with both children. Mm. I was... I never... It's not I'd never enjoyed it. I just never allowed myself time to enjoy it because I was so desperate to just kind of have to get back on. And yeah. And I, do, I also don't think it was really an option because the reality is that we were young we didn't have much money we were both starting out in our careers and actually we didn't have the luxury of kind of saying oh i don't need to work i did need to work yeah um it wasn't a luxury just to kind of say so i it didn't have the option just to say i'm i'm not going to work mm. um and uh, obviously i wanted to um but but actually needs must as well. Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm just listening to. you and thinking as well. Do you do you think you're one of those people that feels like they sort of live life a little bit on fast forward? Like
3: yeah, two hundred like, miles an hour mm. all the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of on that. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> just think as well. I know that when I when I felt pregnant, um, my mum said to me, "Oh, it's good having your babies young because it keeps you. You can be a bit selfish for yourself." Oh. Um, which I thought. I sort of took quite a lot of that and I would like, great, that means yeah. I'm allowed to try and cram everything in and have, giving my work a bit of space is good. Because sometimes when people wait a bit, you might feel like everything needs to stop and, you know, then you sort of give yourself over to parenting in a different way. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, big generalisations and I'm not sure yeah. if that's, you know, always the case with people. But but I don't... Looking back, I'm not really sure I needed that advice I think I probably would have done that. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have
3: no regrets about, you know, doing it because mm. actually... That's what made me happy. My kids are absolutely fine. They're really mm. well rounded, um, you know. Despite the general arguments on a daily basis, That's which I told is you totally what normal. To me this absolutely, normal. but they, um, yeah, they just, um, you know. But I did do the whole, and it is, you know, we're talking about juggling. You know, I did whatever what so many people are doing, and yeah. it's like. How do you... You know, you do that drop-off, you do that drop-off. I then went to work. The nursery's then waiting there at, like, six o'clock, like, going to, to, to try... You know, I'm racing out to try to pick it up. And then over the last, um, you know, um, Thursday... It was only... In COVID, because everybody's always like, "Well, how did you manage to do everything?" And the reality is that I had childcare. Like, you can't not do it without childcare. So I had a really hands-on mum. Mm. Um, I um, and I also had full-time childcare, whether that was a live-in person. So I've had many different au pairs over the years, many different nannies, and up until COVID, I had a full-time live-in nanny. And it was COVID that changed everything. Yeah. Um, Which is kind of, because I don't think people always admit to that all the time. And I think that, I think that then people might look at, say, someone like me or you or whoever and say, how are they doing it? But the reality is that they do it with a team of people. Absolutely. And I think it's there's no shame in that. And None at all. I think, like, you know, you kind of do whatever you can that's best for your family to make it work. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And I mean, the only reason, really, in, in the podcast conversations that I don't talk to, don't generally ask people too much about childcare is because I think that is just what everybody does yeah. in terms of, and every, you know, if you're if you've got like a sister that helps out, or your mum, or a nanny, or an au pair, or you use a nursery, or any of those things, we're all looking at what options we have and yeah. working out what, what tessellates the best with your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes it can be a bit distracting, and also there's a sort of weird um, judgment that can go along, particularly with people where they're lucky enough to have you know to live. You know, maybe in a better quality of life than the average person, and they think, oh, well, you've probably just passed off all the parenting.
3: Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: and really, I suppose it was more, I wanted to make sure that people had the conversation where it's like, you, you know, we're all actually going through very similar things, yeah. no matter where yeah, you're living yeah. on the scale. Obviously, some of us are lucky enough to, you know, have more options. Mm. But, but I think 100% childcare is something that I think I'm always open to those conversations. I think it's really important people know how it goes. And actually, I'm quite, normally quite nosy. And I like hearing, mm. like, so how does that work for you? And how do you do it? Because yeah. Just because it's like everybody's got their own thing they've sort yeah. of worked out. Um, and there's so many different levels of it. And, mm. you know, I mean, I, I used to go to ChildMinder when I was a kid. That was what my parents did when I was really little, and now, yeah, we have a very like complicated system, but it means that for two musician parents, Richard and I, can have as much, pretty much as much flexibility it's as we as need. And but I think it plays
3: into parent guilt, doesn't it? Definitely, because I think it plays into how you are as a mum when you are around, mm. depending on if you're overcompensating or you feel like. Oh no they you know they're getting a better relationship with that person or whatever it is and you 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 know we all we're all guilty of never feeling like we're good enough in the roles that we're doing, but I would say I would say when my kids were younger, and this is obviously all pre cancer, I definitely had that classic um you know uh, guilt over do they even you know am I doing the right thing mm. I'm not with them at all um that's fine. Does it matter? My whole salary was being pumped back into childcare because that's basically what happens. And, but you, you never feel like you're doing it well. Like I never felt like I was a mum or at work. I was kind of like in this hybrid of like trying to be both and failing catastrophically. I don't think I was failing at all, but I think that's just what emotionally feel. how you yeah. felt and I think we all do that and you're right regardless of like what luxuries you can afford to try to support that I think we we all have those same feelings don't we yeah and I do
2: wonder as well if your job is something I mean I think a lot of people would look at someone as their deputy head and think that probably their home is very well run very well behaved kids but you know you sort of imagine like if you're the Kids, offspring of teachers—they're going to be like. Is there
3: no? <laughs> so I, I, I realised in lockdown. Oh my god! I cannot teach my own children. I always knew I couldn't. Um, but teaching your own kids is an absolute nightmare. Yes. Like it's an absolute nightmare. Quite to really the point. To you say that you weren't able to just be like, "Come on." No. Like <laughs> give, give me like, give me like genuinely give me hundreds of unruly children that aren't my own. Absolutely fine. me my, my own two, and I'm there going. If you do this, they're like, "Well, you can't put me in detention. You can't say that. I'm your mum." <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh, and golly. it's like, it, it was it was so ridiculous, actually, to the point that in in lockdown, um, I have two polar opposite children. Um, Hugo is quite self motivated and kind of just actually got. Caught, you know, suited the whole kind of actually sitting at his desk working. He likes a bit of order. He was absolutely fine. I have Eloise, who was like, I'm not going to do that. And um, I I ended up just giving up, actually. And we, d- we did loads of other things. Mm. But I it was such a battle um, that I just had to just, for my own sanity and her own sanity, and almost the fact that she was actually going backwards rather than making any form of progress mm. we just parked it and learned how to bake and make stuff um and just do totally different things because it just was so counterproductive
2: yeah i know that that sounds especially i think if you're anything like me and spent quite a lot of time being fairly critical of aspects of yep. <laughs> you suddenly put the teacher hat on and you go actually it's me now i go well I'm going to criticize you then, if I say.
3: <laughs> We ended up like we ended up doing a podcast, which actually was the best thing that we did, because. Um, what a podcast with your kids? Yeah, and it was called. Nice. It was really cute. It was called the Good Stuff, and we did it for like two series, mm. um, and actually, it gave us like almost a focus to do something um, each week. Mm. Um, and it, you know, put it out and stuff. And it took quite well, and it was just really nice to be able to then look back on that um, as something that maybe when they're older. Mm. And again, I suppose now I'm, I'm... I am about... It sounds really cheesy, like, making memories. But I suppose people always say, you know, especially, like, living um, on a ticking time bomb, like, people always say, you're going to write your kids letters? Are you going to... Um, you know what are you going to do for your kids but the reality is like what i've been doing with my kids is what i want to do with them yeah. if that makes sense like yeah, so yeah. everything that we do um is ticking that box of like memories or forming forming an image of i suppose me and our life together that i want them to remember yeah. or the skills that i want them to have
2: yeah because i was going to ask you about that because um i remember it. Right at the beginning of recording these conversations, I spoke to Candice Brathwaite who yeah. talked about legacy and it really stayed with me because it's something I've literally never thought about. Yeah. But I'd imagine it's something you've had to think about. Um, and like I said before, everybody's everybody's got to think a little bit about the imprint they leave behind. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, how... Is it something that you've? Is that really your decision? Then it's just it's the memories and there's nothing you feel
3: quite resolved with. Yeah, I think I think um, having a, a incurable diagnosis, it makes you look at kind of okay. So if I, God forbid, I mean you know I've been to hell over the last couple of weeks, and I really thought it was the beginning of the end. Um, and thank God for the NHS because. I was literally just rushed in for, I mean, my liver was failing. And if it if the operation that I had hadn't gone to plan, I certainly wouldn't be sitting speaking to you now, which I find our bodies are amazing. Mm. But I, my body had started to shut down and it was very, very scary. Um, and you don't really have time to think about things because you're in an emergency situation. I think any anyone who's had kind of, you know, situations like that, whether it's... Um, atop- topic, pregnancies or whatever it is a life or death situation so you just have to do whatever you can in that situation mm. right um but I would say um had when I was first diagnosed one of my biggest fears was that my kids wouldn't know the kind of person that I was and I think that a lot of that came from probably guilt about not being present with them in the ways that I wanted to be all the time, not knowing totally what was going on in their life. Not that that's an issue, but I think it's probably my feeling more than anything else. And then I think since my diagnosis, it's not, I don't think it's been a conscious effort, but subconsciously, I think I've, I've, you, and I think it's also the older your kids get. You want you want to infiltrate them with some things that are important to you, whether that's certain values that you have. Um, for me, actually, it's pass, passing on my love of party. So Eloise loves to throw a party. So she she already at the age of eleven, she likes you know setting up the tables and she she knows how to make balloon arches and she she like she, she genuinely likes to throw a party, and I think that's great because. Like I know that's a weird skill to pass. It's not a weird skill to pass on. It's something that I love, and actually, it's something that I would love my daughter to do. Um, and the same with fancy dress. Like she she went camping um, with her her class a couple of uh, weekends ago, and they had a theme. Like it was Ibiza theme, and most of the girls like you know put a bit of glitter on her on their face. And Eloise got, like, I mean, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of fancy dress. Like, people will come to my house to borrow fancy dress because <laughs> it just is there. And she, she basically, I found her rummaging through my box. And she came down and she said, I've packed for camping. And she had, like, her regular stuff, which was, like, about this small. And then she had, like, an entire, like, bag, giant bag of, like, sequin jackets. And she said, she said... I can't remember her exact comment. She was like, "Oh well, if you're going to do it, you may as well just be extra." Uh, if Hugo was going camping, would he have a similar bag of party deck gear? No, he wears blazer and like chinos. <laughs> 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 like the way the way that I'd probably infiltrate my son, or trying to, is I'm trying to make him not become a total clone of his father, um, which sounds really weird to say, but I I'm making him. Um, uh, it's not a softer side, but my husband and him will go off on a tangent on massive debates for hours and hours and hours, and they always think that they are right. <laughs> um, so I probably um, am trying to instil with him that listening to everybody's opinion might not be a bad thing. <laughs> um, but I, I also, to be fair, to be fair, say so my son is 13, and recently... um this first cycle of chemo. Um, When we were younger, we used to do these chemo dances, which is, because I was attached to the chemo pump, I didn't want them to be really scared of seeing me like all kind of wired up essentially. And um, we did this dance to Beauty and the Beast, but I mean, he was like seven at the time and seven year old boys don't really, like they don't think about, they'll just do it because they like the mum. Now, um, my son, um, my daughter was away, and I was on the chemo pump, and I, I said, like, come on, chemo, chemo dances are back. And my son was like, oh, does that mean I have to do it? And anybody, you'll understand, with a 13-year-old boy, the idea of them dancing with their mum is like, oh, my <laughs> God. It's like, hell. Anyway, he, he did it for me. Um, but I think it because he knew it meant so much. And then it was really funny because um, he allowed me to put it on Instagram and he doesn't allow me to put much. I would never put stuff on Instagram with him without his permission, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, same with my kids. And he he allowed me to. And then I woke up the next day and it had gone quite viral and had like over a million views and I was like, I'm really sorry. And rather than him being a bit embarrassed, he was like, Yes, I only have to do one thing, and it beats Eloise every time. Ah. <laughs> so we wow. just thought that's so funny. The competitive
2: streak. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? While you're talking, about, it's actually making me feel a bit emotional because I'm thinking that if you're the sort of person that can turn things into a celebration, you're never going to be short of friends. And the the sort of extraneous parts of what the, the, that kernel is is about finding the joy and being able to celebrate the here and now and actually the fact that there are people that don't have that skill is actually quite a sad thought actually because when you said it, it is no it is a skill i was thinking it's actually like a something you can carry with you for everything yeah. Yeah. um and i think it'd probably be good if if it was given more you know just as a, as a general thing of like how are we going to turn where we're at now into something joyful
1: yeah
2: you know, there's, there's so many things that are given credence, but actually, being able to just look
3: for the positive is an amazing life skill. Yeah. And it's really hard. I think it is really hard to do. Um, and I think people will look at me and go, "Oh, you're always really positive." I don't. Th- I'm not because my husband will tell you at three o'clock in the morning, I'm definitely not. But I think the reality is that you can spiral really quickly. Mm. And I think whether, whether that's mental health, whether that is physical health as well. And I think the mind and body really play on each other as well in terms of like you know, when your, my mind is down, my body's down, and vice versa. When I look in the mirror, or whatever it is, it's kind of it's it very much reflects and it changes my mindset. um but but I think you you can kind of i've I've realized what happens. and I would say like actually, even even about five days ago, I was kind of, my body, I, you know, I started chemo again, and it's really hard, to be honest with you. It's really hard coming back to this chemo regime four years on, um, and just physically, like, the side effects are hideous. Like, I don't want to, you know, make it sound... Um, you know, I don't want to scare people but I think you know I'm, I'm, I'm not fresh faced into this I'm coming back with a knackered body which is why I'm finding it hard off the back of liver failure off the back so I, I know why it's so hard like it's not supposed to be a walk in the park but I think I found myself after like 14 days in hospital or you know well I wasn't admitted for 14 days but in and out mm. where you're just doing cancer and you spiral you spiral into what's the point like what is the point, and you just get to a place where you are so down about stuff that you wonder whether it's worth carrying on and then, like I said earlier like it's those little things that can flip you, but I think you don't it's not that you don't have a choice well, you do have a choice but but spiraling down is so is so destructive, mm. and there's no there's no good that can come of it like even if the, even if the outcome is absolutely catastrophic there is no good that can come from spiraling down that road so you you can only find you can only look for the the positives really you have to find something because that is what's going to get you up in the day Mm. um because otherwise i don't know how you will get up
2: Mm. no i think i think you're right and I, i think as well when again with that sort of way of looking at life and the concentric circles that come out of it from from talking about things in that way, that's become part of obviously what happens under your roof with your kids. So they'll be able to share that with people. But also through your podcast and all the community that's found through that. Um, and I remember earlier you were saying, you know, you sort of forged this sort of new career at, since diagnosis. Has it kind of surprised you how mu- yeah. how much of your life has been touched by that that one yeah. meeting in the doctor's office?
3: Yeah it surprised me um it's taken me out of my comfort zone in so many different ways like um it's kind of cuz people say oh aren't you pleased that you got it, I, like I'm not even joking you they'll say oh, aren't you pleased that you got cancer cuz now you get to do x y and z and I'm like no I wish it was wow. something else that, I know it's it's a bit it's a bit bonkers, isn't it but I think I think yeah, it's, it's been like great I totally recommend it I love it <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think it it has forced me to shake up my life mm. um and I think Sometimes when you're on, especially where I was, I was on such a kind of blinker track. Mm. And I think I would have been fine on that blinker track, actually. Yes. Um, But sometimes you don't have an option and the whole pathway is thrown, you know, teared up. And it's really interesting where you find yourself because I thought I would crumble um, only because... um, funny enough i used to have nightmares uh, growing up and i always think it's like a premonition actually my my rear current nightmares was almost exactly this situation where you you know that you might die and i was used to like think how, how how can anybody live like that and i could never comprehend it and i just mm. i always look back and wonder whether somebody was feeding me messages i don't know it was it's very weird feeling um and i you realize that when you are faced with your worst fear actually you 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 don't always respond to it in the way that you think you would respond to it yeah um and i kind of came not came back fighting but i i kind of found fire that i it's not i didn't know i've always been like a competitive fiery character as we've talked about like probably from my upbringing but it's amazing how it kind of those skills come back and they come back to really help you through yeah um at the times that you need them the most and I think it's the thing that I find really interesting about where I am now in terms of um you know doing the podcast and doing some writing um you know I find it's all all, almost under another umbrella, which is almost still education in a way, um, you know, minus the, the nice clothes and everything. Um, but it's it's almost like a kind of education on, on how, what cancer might look like and um, prevention and championing things, which weirdly, like, almost fills me with um, the same purpose that I got in teaching, which was always kind of to have an impact, to make a difference, and i it's funny how even four and a half years on, I found like a purpose again in terms of, I suppose, broadcasting in the in the loose sense, but um being able to use my platform mm. in a positive way yeah. to support others. Because essentially that is what teaching is.
2: Yeah, and I was thinking about you know, the 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 way you speak in the podcast and your book, which I've I've got upstairs. Um, fuck you, cancer. Um, and I was thinking the people that say, you know, you must be glad this happened to you, which is obviously, you know, look, people get, say, really weird stuff, especially when they're flummoxed by something big and scary. But actually, what that actually is, is a massive compliment, because you've had to walk into something that's, you know, whatever the scary thing is, one in two of us will be diagnosed with, but everybody's frightened of, and you've managed to make it actually seem like something where there's some good stuff that can come out of it. And that's actually just people saying to you, that's, that's you that's done that. That's not the diagnosis. That's not any of the peripheral mm-hmm. stuff. It's your ability to to navigate that and to make it look like, you know what, I'm going to sh- shift things and make this work for me as best I can. Yeah. And that's really what people are saying there. You've actually managed to sell, sell, oh, sell it, you
3: know. <laughs> like, you've actually managed to make it look like it's got some <laughs> good <thing>. stuff attached. <laughs> The thing that I the messages that I like the most, well I don't I don't like them because people have been diagnosed with cancer, but the thing that I found really hard at the beginning was when I was diagnosed, you you want a hope, right? And I, I've, I've said this before, but you want a hope, but you you in order to find hope, you almost need to see it modelled somewhere. Mm. You need to see examples of it. Yeah. Um and I couldn't find it because the statistics spoke for themselves. So all all I saw was the stark statistics that kind of said, you're not going to make it through the first year. And the worst thing is with those statistics is that about 30% make it through the first year. So I always knew that even in my first year, there was more chance of dying than living. And I kind of thought, well, gosh, I'm going to have to be my own hope then. And I think, like, what I've then discovered is when, like, every day, um, and I genuinely mean this, like, I'm blown away by the messages that I get from people saying, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I see that you can do, you know, you can still live a life. Yeah. Um. And I, like, I hope I showed both sides of it. Sometimes I... Will show the nice side because actually that's the side I want to remember. Um, but in a way, you know, that's also okay because actually, if you're facing a terminal diag—not even terminal diagnosis, whatever—and you think, "How am I going to do this?" Mm. But then you see somebody else doing it, you're like, "Oh, oh, well, okay, I can do it."
2: Yeah. No,
3: no, absolutely, and I think that's
2: that. Your book is exactly the companion I would want with me for sure. But because you're you're right, it's got the tone is just right. It's relatable, it's reassuring. It's not saying this is going to be walking apart, but it's just giving you all the tools to say this is. There's lots about this is big and scary, but there's a way to walk through it, and as you say, have a life through it. Because golly, if if you can't do that with that, that that is that is the hope, isn't it? That's the. That's the biscuits at 3am. That's the bits, you know, you've got to have those bits. Absolutely.
3: I I wrote um, another book in lockdown, but I didn't like it. So I, um, it's really interesting. So I, so it was supposed to be out like, now actually i think i
2: saw this yeah i saw this on amazon and i was a bit confused because then it suddenly said it was coming out in like 2078
3: or something yeah (laughs) which basically means we don't have a date (laughs) so it's cool it's gonna it's gonna be called how to live when you can be dead Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting because i wrote it um you know i had this like really weird like idea that i would just write in lockdown because obviously nothing else to do that's Totally not what happened. Um, and I, I did, I did like write. I did end up writing um most of it during, like, well, over this last year. And I, I don't like it. Um, and my publishers agree with me. It's not, it's not the book it was supposed to be. And then, weirdly, um, since, uh, since things have gone a bit tits up for me, diagnosis-wise, I found like a new way of writing and I think it's always the way isn't it you end up writing um I don't know with you maybe you end up um you know uh, writing music or whatever it is when when you you fight you 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 have a reason and then that that is but but you can't the the problem is like when you're hunting for that reason it doesn't happen you're like oh oh my god and then it kind of just hits you and suddenly like um like last week I like wrote i ripped up about 50,000 words I rewrote about 10,000 last week and was like, "Sent." I was like, so much better. It's like, that's the book I need to write. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's essentially like when I was in education, I did a massive um, research project on mindset, basically, in the classroom, which is why now in schools, a lot of kids will learn growth mindset. Um, and I, I did the research into that like 15 years ago. But then... It's really interesting because I know the skill set and the theory, but it's totally different in real life. So the book is about applying the theory in real life. Ah, that sounds brilliant. But what I realised is like, I, I didn't, yeah, I realised it wasn't quite right until I actually was suddenly like, oh my God, I might die. And so suddenly then I found that fire. So hopefully it'll be out maybe next year. But interestingly enough, I kind of um yeah, it's A, it's certainly not finished. And B, I kind of, um, I keep on going, Am I gonna live to see it? Am I gonna live to see it? And then I keep on having this like nervous like conversation with my publisher saying, like, what happens if I'm actually about to die? Are we just gonna like you know, quickly get it out because I'm like, I don't I don't want a book to be published if I'm dead. Like that'd be weird. Um and so then I but in a weird way, being confident enough to say, right, next April, let's put a book out is a massive mindset step for me. Yeah. So at the moment I'm just in that balance of like finding the confidence to go, I'm gonna live.
2: <laughs> yeah, well and it also it feels a little bit to me that you always that kind of peas down the hallway comment. Yeah. You've, there's been little moments of those throughout. So, this recent shift in, in what's been going on with your cancer has been the peas down the hallway. And you're yeah. like, actually, no, I'm 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 putting a book out next April. So yeah, <laughs> so things things are happening, and I'm really glad the book's taken on a new new life because I think that's a lovely place to put lots of things. And yeah. you write really
3: brilliantly. So well, thank you. But it's kind of um, again, it's like one of those things where um I'm dyslexic my daughter's dyslexic dyslexic uh, can't even can't even it's a stupid word for for what it means to be fair for
0: dyslexia it's
3: for dyslexic people because actually you can't pronounce (laughs) it um essentially so yeah I'm really I'm dyslexic and um writing um has never really been my thing like I've always been able to write um but not I would never have thought I would be able to kind of... Be I now write every week um, for, like, my column and stuff, and actually I really enjoy it. Mm. In, in a weird way, again, it's like a platform for teaching. So yeah. it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it keeps me going.
2: And how have you found your community? How important has it been, the, the Instagram followers and the
3: podcast listeners and all of that? How- Massively important. I think it's kind of... Um, I find it... Um, i find i'm blown away by the support in terms of especially at the low points like the support is incredible and it def it definitely makes you feel just um like you have a big virtual hug around you mm. i would say the only negative is that because i'm so immersed in a online and real life community because you end up you know in especially in cancer world like you do end up meeting people and some people that i've met since cancer and now some really good friends of mine um the the hardest challenge is i i read on a daily basis and i lose on a daily basis um you know people friends um i read catastrophic stories um i the emotion that i take on board i do sometimes have to learn and i'm not good at it all the time is compartmentalizing what I'm what people are telling me yeah not um not um uh, making that my own story mm. um realizing that I can't save everybody realizing that I'm I'm not a psychologist I'm not a doctor yeah um I'm not there to to advise as much as I want to I can't mm. it's irresponsible to But that doesn't stop people sharing their stories with me, which I think is amazing, and I want people to continue to do that. Um, But it can sometimes be quite a heavy emotional load to carry. God, I can imagine. I think it sounds like you've probably had a
2: a few years of that now and can sort of work out when you need to just go, Yeah, I need to... Yeah. Put the phone down or shut the computer and, go and do something else. And I think
3: people assume that I have somebody who does that or reads that, but it's not as me no, it's that reads you. it. Yeah. And I think um even though like my following is small but it's really engaged. Yeah. And so people follow me for a reason and then I think for a reason the thing that I love though is people do come up and in like, even at Hampton Court yesterday, I had a couple of people come up. They then share their stories. They say how the podcast really helped them, mm. or um, how my columns really helped them, or whatever it is. And actually, um, that's really lovely. And I really mm. like that. So.
2: Yeah, no, it's really special. Those things, you know, that community is it's, it's pretty vital, really, in the connections. Um, I'm conscious I'm we've been speaking for a little while, and I don't want to <laughs> um, hold you here forever. I was going to ask you a couple more things. I, are you the sort of mother you thought
3: that you would be? Um, yes, partly in that I am utterly disorganised. Um, <laughs> I was expecting you to say that. <laughs> and, and my kids, like, you know, my kids are the kids that turn up with all their missing books and I'm not the mother that helps them with homework. So on that side, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I... I would say I enjoy being a parent a lot more than I ever thought and I, I would say that I think we've probably established I've got this like hard-nosed edge to me and I think um, I'm absolutely hard-nosed until you take me to the school play and you've got 40 girls singing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, the Annie play, and I'm like a gibbering wreck. So it's kind of like I'm one extreme or the other with my kids so, so yeah. that surprises me it surprises me how much joy I get from my children and um, the thing that it doesn't, yeah no it does surprise me a little bit it's like I, I actually want to spend time with my kids <laughs>
2: <laughs> That sounds so shocked I'm like Whoa. <laughs> Well there's a nice quote in uh, you know, the film Lost in Translation Yeah. and Bill Murray's character is asked about his kids and he said you have these children and then they turn out to be some of the nicest people you've ever met and I always thought that was a really nice and nice I think it was lovely. Nice quote for kids, and I feel like on a good day, I yeah. agree with that.
3: <laughs> But I think I would say that's changed weirdly. Like I think when they were younger, and maybe it's just because you know what, nobody likes a dirty nappy and a vomiting baby, do they? But the reality, I think, you know, as kids do get older, your relationship massively changes with them. Mm. And I think I I did spend spend a lot of their younger years wanting to pass on the crying baby, and um, so I think I've been shocked at how much I'm now like. I'm the person who, when everybody else wants to get a babysitter, um, I'm now the person who's like, well, come, my kids just come.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, also, they're, they're turning into, like, young adults. It's like a different yeah. shift, isn't it, when they're in double figures and
3: yeah,
2: you can talk to them about loads of stuff and, you know, it's more about negotiation than just, like, you know,
3: yeah,
2: the plate spinning bit when they're little.
3: Yeah, which is a very different ball game. Like, you know, yeah. yeah, with my son and I'm like, yeah, he's, you know, we have proper conversations I mean he he like you know they both beat me at chess they both beat me at every form of card game and um, they you know they can my son can now beat me at any debate around the table so yeah that's great though isn't it
2: it's quite nice that feeling like oh cool it's like okay yeah you win (laughs) yeah exactly it's a good thing um well, one thing I wanted to... If you wouldn't mind indulging me with this, I wanted to read to you something that my stepdad... He lived with cancer for a couple of years. Um, and he he left a letter. that He wasn't really a man of... He uh, was so good with his emotions when he was talking. Oh. But he left this letter. And something he wrote really made me think of you. So if you wouldn't oh, mind, I just wanted to absolutely. tell you. Um, let me get it in the right way around. He said... Now, a quick, important homily for you. This is, by the way, what he wants us to read in his memoir. Okay. Uh, with apologies if I've appropriated some thoughts from others. If you die from cancer, you don't lose to it. You don't become, quote, a courageous fighter who lost their battle, as many people like to say. No, you beat it by the way you live, why you live, and what you leave behind. With the help of a gloriously sane and thoughtful oncologist who recognised quality of life is more important than chemical containment, I think I beat it. Yeah. Is that something you would Absolutely agree Absolutely, spot on absolutely
3: i think that's beautiful actually i think that's really lovely i think it's it is about quality of life um and it is that fine balance but it is also about how you choose to live in the darkness how you choose to dance in the shadows right mm. it's 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 lit it's that it is kind of you choose to live despite the fact that your body might not want to, um, but that is a choice mm. um and it's a it's a hard choice to make funny enough, like because it takes every ounce of energy and every ounce of fire you can find, but that's the only way to win the war
2: yeah no it's, it's
3: beautiful and um I
2: think it's It's so lovely of you to spend so much time talking to me. I've loved it. I could Um, chat forever. Yeah, I mean, I literally like. (laughs) like, Have we actually been chatting for an hour? Yes, and also,
3: I'd really like to see your fancy dress collection because I've got a pretty good one. I was going to say. I was going to say, mine is nothing in comparison to yours. I'm sure, but it's like whenever you're doing the kitchen discos, I'm like. Oh, I really want that glittery dress. <laughs> <laughs> you can go upstairs and try it on if you
2: like. She's <laughs> like, oh my God, I love it. Hey, listen, if your October birthday, is it your 40th, you said? Mm-hmm. How, do, you want, do you want me to come and say murder? Oh! Yeah? <laughs> come on, for you and your uni mates.
3: <laughs> oh my god! I would literally die. Let's do it. I would literally
2: like please, just. Please we could just come to
3: the party, <laughs> just yes. like you will have to like drink at the party and just like have fun. Yeah, I'm good at that. Don't worry. But, but it is going to be Halloween. <laughs> That's
2: fine. I've sung. I've sung at Halloween before as well. Oh my god! Murder on the dance floor. Come on, it's a good Halloween <laughs> song.
3: <laughs> Maybe that's why you liked it on a lot. Of. It's actually quite gory. The thing that people can't quite get their head around with me and... Me and I, so I actually have, like, gravestones and stuff, right? And I have skeletons in my cupboard. And I each year, I, like, I collect... You mean my, literally, not figuratively? No, literally. Yeah, well, a bit of both. And
2: I, people find it very strange. I don't think I've ever heard someone say that completely really straight face before.
3: I've, got, I've actually got skeletons in my cupboard. <laughs> the thing that people find quite weird is... You know, I'm a stage four cancer patient and then they're turning up at my house and I'm like, welcome to my graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like, is she okay with this? <laughs> oh, let's make it a day. Oh welcome I love to your graveyard. I love
2: that
0: <laughs> <laughs> Day of the day passing. Perfect. <laughs> oh.
2: pretty incredible right and lots and lots of things to think about yeah I suppose yeah just having all those conversations but I think the bits that really stood out to me were firstly the fact that Deborah's had the confidence and uh, strength of mind to choose her own path through the process that is becoming a cancer patient and the fact that she's chosen what works for her and has got an instinct about what works. So while the rest of us might go into a tailspin, and I am not saying Deborah's without a tailspin moments, she's very transparent about that. But the clearer, you know, the bigger picture is that she's decided what works for her in terms of making the memories with her kids, how she still wants to throw the parties, still wants to dance when she has her chemo pump. It's incredibly inspiring, strong stuff, isn't it? All of that, and also there was just that that bit in the chat where I said, you know, you, you talk so matter-of-factly about the fact that your diagnosis means you might not be around for bucket loads of time to come. It just doesn't seem, doesn't compute. And she said, me neither. And I think, you know, for all of us, actually, the surreal nature about what happens when we might not have lots of time left in our lifetime, which is obviously going to happen to all of us at some point, is something that's just so surreal. I think human beings are just designed to want to survive actually that is our instinct and it's it runs deep and it manifests in lots of different ways so yeah it's given me lots of things to think about and i really just want to wish lots and lots of love to deborah and her kids and her husband and her surrounding family and friends of which there are Billions and billions and all her supporters and everybody that's invested in what's going on there. So sending spending lots of love and lots of love to you, of course. And I hope you have a good rest of your week until you lend me your ears again. But uh, yeah, when I started doing this podcast, I knew I was going to have some cool conversations, but I don't think I realised how much they were going to actually shape the way that I started to live my own life and change things up. And how often I was going to feel emotional. So, yeah, thank you to all, to Deborah and all the women that have gone before with their conversations because I love sharing that wisdom and getting it firsthand is incredible. But hey, I get to share it with you, which is lovely too. And now from me and Rizzo, who is, she always seems to find me when I'm talking to you, actually. My cat, Rizzo. Yeah, you're right. The one who pooed on the bed last week. She actually did it the next day as well. She's just the cat that keeps on giving. Anyway, from the two of us, uh, I send you lots of love and I will see you soon.